If you could all join me in Acts chapter 17. It's a familiar passage. Paul standing on Mars Hill now was quite the journey he took to Mars Hill. If you remember at the end of his first missionary journey, he returned to Jerusalem in Acts 15 and he spoke to people there about what God had done among the Gentiles. And there was a discussion about, okay, well, this is new because we're familiar with Jehovah God interacting with the Jewish people and the law that we keep. And now that we are entering into this new dispensation of all these changes and the Gentiles are being ushered in a great number into the church, they're trying to handle the law and all that. So they discussed there in Acts 15 what God had done and what God was going to do going forward. And then from there, Paul launches out into his second missionary journey. And this journey takes quite the twist and turn. How many of you have ever planned out a long itinerary, then like two days into the journey, it all changes? Have you ever done that? Maybe you booked your flights, everything lined up, been planning six months, go to the airport, you can't check in, right? Something goes wrong and the whole journey is just totally changed. Well, Paul's going on this journey and very early into it, the Holy Spirit starts really changing things up for him. He says, okay, no, you can't go here, go here. And his whole itinerary changes, and he takes on this twisting journey. He ends up in Philippi, ends up in jail, and he's released from jail. Then he ends up somewhere else, and then um, we see during this same journey that there's a riot that ensues because of the gospel change that had happened in the society. And then he finds himself in Athens. Now, Athens is the center of Greek worship. It's the center of the Greco-Roman belief system about the gods and what truth was, there was a place called the Pantheon. You all are familiar with the Pantheon. And the Pantheon was just the, the array of gods that people just amassed themselves. Now, Paul comes to this place in Athens, Mars Hill. This is actually a court-like setting where they would bring people in. And they said, hey, we are all ears to whatever anybody has to offer. So they'd bring him in. And they'd have, maybe have the, the philosophers, the great minds of the um, age come in. They would put the man on trial almost and have him speak and present what he had to say. Say, okay, let's run what you have to say through the, let's, let's, let's put it through the test. What do you have to offer us? Now we know because they had a pantheon, they were quite open to adding more. And maybe they'd just be ready to just take on another God and hey, we'll build, build another statue over here and all this. So here we are in Acts 17. We're, we're going to look at Paul's speech, his sermon on Mars. So let's all stand together. I know sometimes when we read long passages of Scripture together, we wake up at the end, right? Where are we at? Okay. And then we get back in the sermon. I want us all to stay engaged in this because I'm really just going to walk through this sermon. It's not really my sermon this morning. It's God's sermon originally, and then Paul presents it here. I just want to share what Paul shared right there in Athens. So he's standing here. He's standing there in the, the, the heart of popular culture, minds, and thought. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, verse 22, Acts 17, 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Real quick, when we think of the word superstitious, we think of the guy who's afraid about the black cat crossing the road in front of him, right? When you come up to this time of the year, and, oh, some people are superstitious, some aren't. That's not really what this is talking about. These people were desperately religious. We're going to see that played out here very soon. I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God, that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, 
seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell upon all of the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the God that is likened to gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day, in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men and that he hath raised him from the dead. Let's pray. God, I pray that you be our teacher this morning. Would you, Holy Spirit, illumine truth in our hearts? Would we walk away changed, Lord? Would we have a decision to make? Would our perspective of you and our world be altered this morning? Thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word. In your name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Paul, standing here among these desperate idol worshipers, he sees an altar that was just kind of like the anonymous, the wild card altar. They said, okay, just in case we miss something, let's, here we, we'll call this the unknown God, right? So this would just kind of, hey, this will be like the question box, mystery box. No God will be offended, angry. We, won't, we will cover our bases. And so Paul stands up and he says, hey, I'm going to take this, I'm going to kind of key off of it and talk about the true God. And he challenges them with a few things about this God. The first thing he challenges their thinking about is that this God is the God that made the world. He is the creator, and therefore, he is not the created. We'll see it later on in the passage. He argues, argues them very simply. He says, if we are God made, if we believe there is a God so great and mighty that he is the maker of man, wouldn't it follow that it's impossible that he is man-made? If man is God-made, there is no way God is man-made. And because of that, these statues that you see around you are a farce because you made them. Because you have to sustain them. He goes on, he says, he's not worshipped with men's hands. Now we think of the word worship like, oh, no, I thought we're supposed to worship God. We were commanded in the scripture to worship God. So now Paul stands up and he tells these unbelievers, don't worship God. What's that about? Well, do you remember the story in the Old Testament? I think maybe it's first or second Kings. They had a God that they would bow down to and they put it up. And what happened to that God? Does, there, does anyone remember what story I'm talking about? It fell down, right? And that was awkward because you're bowing down and, and it's right there. And then God's supposed to be great. And you're supposed to be worshiping him. So I thought, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get this God and we're going to repair him. Get the architects back over here. Hey, we see this is the foundation issue here. We're going to prop this God back up. And this God was very literally sustained by those who worshipped him. I heard recently someone else preaching on this passage, and they said, the gods were judged on their popularity. Like, like almost like how many followers they had, right? We look at, hey, someone has uh, 20,000 followers. Okay, wow, now they're, they're rising in popular. This is a powerful God. And the, the power, the, the respect that, this God, that the gods had was based on the number of followers, the following that they had. And in a very real way, the power of their God was reflected by the support of man. And so he's standing here in this whitewashed, man-made, craftsman-designed room 
in the, in the, in the Acropolis there, and then the surrounding area, probably so many gods, he says, yeah, you, you, you maintain these gods. You create these gods. Oh, okay, let's give, them, let's give them another leg. Let's give them another face. Let's give them another, and we're just going to use our imagination, try to imagine what this could be. He said, this God is much, much different because he made you, and he sustains you. So he says, he's the God that made all things. He says, he is Lord of heaven and earth. So not only is he the creator, he is the sovereign. The, the word Lord there is, but he's the master. He's the curios. He is the, he is the, the leader. He's the king of the world. So this God that I'm talking about, the God that you don't know, the unknown God to you, first thing you need to know is that he's the creator God. He made you. You did not make him. He's bigger than your brain. He's bigger than your area here. He's bigger than your temples, and he can't live inside of it. And he's Lord and master. He's sovereign. At the end of the day, all of us will stand before this Lord and this king and this sovereign. He has complete control over his creation. He is Lord of what? Of heaven and earth. He says, so he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything from you because he gives to all life and breath and all things. He is the life-giving God. He is the alive God. He is the active God. He's not the passive God. So he stands there. Let's review. Idol worshipers. People who sustain their own gods. And, God, and Paul says, He's creator, he's not created, he's sovereign, and he's life-giving, he's not passive. And then in verses 26 and 27, he launches into what this God has done and is doing. Based on that foundation. So pretty much he just stood right there in the middle of the pantheon and said, this is all made up. And this is all as strong as you are because you're sustaining it. He says, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a creator, sovereign, powerful, active God. And on that basis, he launches into the action of God. He says that this God has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And when I think about this, recently it just blew across my mind that this means that this God is globally relevant. Because sometimes we walk into different cultures or different belief systems, and we get intimidated because we are afraid that our message is not relevant to them. And what some people do is that they see the, they see the culture, and they say, okay, I'm going to adjust my message, and I'm going to adapt it to this culture. And Paul says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to declare boldly who this God is, and God is, and basically he just slapped to the face of every single idol around him right there, and he says, this is relevant to you. So what's that mean for us? So when I walk into a Muslim home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I see, you know, the Shahada on the wall, and I see the Arabic on the wall, and I see their prayer rugs, and I can think, man, I don't know if this is really relevant, because I'm from like the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church down the road, and this doesn't really jive with their culture, and they're not, they're not used to this. They don't get this, because they believe in Allah, and so if I'm not careful, what can happen is we start with this really like apologetic, like, I'm sorry, I know this is new to you, and this is different, but Christians who understand the power of the globally relevant God, 
understand that as someone has red blood flowing through their veins, the gospel message is applicable to them and it's powerful. And so likewise, when we walk into progressive neighborhoods and we see the flags all over, you know, the rainbow flags and all this stuff, and we're intimidated with thinking, well, these people don't believe in this. That doesn't matter because God made them and that this gospel message is globally relevant. So whether you're going to high society and the well-educated and the well uh, the affluent and just the, the people who we rev- um, revere as the, 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 the top people of society with their education and money and wealth, or for walking into some refugee home with hardly anything who have never believed and never heard the name of Jesus. I can walk into both of those and say, I'm not sure exactly everything you believe. I don't understand exactly where, exact, where you're coming from and what you've been raised in, but I know this. The message I'm about to share with you is relevant, and it's powerful, and it's applicable. And that fuels missionaries going around the world to walk into jungles where they've never heard. It fuels them to go into cities where 99% of the city is Hindu or um, Islamic. How can you do this? Because it's relevant. Because I know the God who made these people. So if God made of all people one blood, not only is he relevant he, to them, he is also equally caring for them. And if we're not careful, we think that God cares more about me than he does for somebody I've never heard of. And we would never say that, but for all practical purposes, we don't care about them, so we think God doesn't care about them. But God is just as interested in the salvation of the person halfway around the world as he is in yours. And so this morning we need to ask for God's heart and say, you know, we understand that God has a special place in his heart for believers. But in a very real way, By creation, God is equally invested in every single person alive on the planet today. And so we say, God, this missions month, give me that heart. Give me the ability to look at anyone and say, the creator creator care for this God, for this person, the God who made this person. When you have a child, I have almost one year old, the care that I have for that child is beyond care I've had for just about anyone in the world before. And your parents know this. You would never take a child, bring them home from the hospital, raise them for a few days, and then just send them on the streets because you care for them as you were part of the making and the, 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 the birthing and the, just the, the, utter, the utter, utter care you have as the father or the mother of that child. I think that's a small comparison of the heart that God has for his creation. What I'm trying to tell you is that no person is dispensable. No person does not matter. And so we need to ask God for his creator care for all people. So he is made of one blood all people. That means that this God is globally relevant. He is globally invested in every single person walking the globe right now. And then he says a couple things I I think that we can really miss in this passage if we're not careful. And a man actually who's involved in missions directed my attention to this verse regarding refugees and immigrants. And we're saying, how great thou art, and I've been talking about the character of our God and like, hey, how does this apply to missions? And we're starting to see how the character of God and the activity of God is the energy behind our mission work. He says in verse 26, He hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he hath determined the times 
before appointed. Now there's some phrasing there that we don't really use on a daily basis. I want you to think of it like this. God determines when people live. Right? He says, okay, so he's made of all, all people. He said he's, de- he's determined. He's decided. He's decided, decided when they would live. How many here selected their birthday? How many of you would prefer a different century to live in? Right? Sometimes like we look back and, wow, if we could just kind of back up this few, few decades, a few centuries, this is get, really getting out of control right now. But God, the truth is that God is sovereign and God has chosen when you live. You know the story of Esther, a passage that God used very powerfully in my heart near the end of my college years as I was kind of deciding, hey God, what do you want me to do with my life? He says, hey, Esther, perhaps you were brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. And if we understand who our God is, we understand that that was not a special thing just for Esther. It was just that Esther happened to be the one that God used to bring that to our attention, that our God decides when people live. You know what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that throughout all of history, God has not selected five people, one of them being Esther. That's not the point there. The point is that God said, I'm going to use the story of Esther, and I'm going to tell all people of all time that I have a purpose for every single person, and I decide when they live, and I have an intent for their life. So God decides when people live. And not only does he decide when they live, what's it say next? And the bounds of their habitation, the borders of where they live. And just like you didn't decide when you would be born, what decade or century you would be alive in, what era in history, you also didn't decide the state or country or area that you were born in. The sovereign God, who is the creator, not the created, has in his wisdom and sovereignty chosen the where and when of your life. And why does he do this? How many of you know someone who's a power freak, control freak? Right? Know those people? Why do they do what they do? Maybe because I'm a little dopamine. They say, go do this, you go do it, and they just feel like, oh man, I'm in, I'm, I have control, I have power, you know? And with all due respect, I want to say our God is not a control freak. He's not aimlessly deciding where and when people live because he's up in heaven. He's like, I need to feel powerful today. He knows he's powerful because he said light and there was light. And he just, word after word, he spoke. And then the thought could cross his mind and creation and all these things. He knows he's powerful. He's not grasping for opportunities to see his power. He has intent and plan in everything he's doing. So why did God decide where and when you would live? Why? Why does God decide where and when anybody in the world lives for that matter? Paul tells us right here. He says, he's made of one blood all nations. He, just, he has determined when and where these people live. And he says that, verse 27, that they should seek the Lord. The unknown God, Paul is telling these people, wants to be known by you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to be the known God. That they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him. Aren't you glad for the events in your life that allowed you to become in contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And maybe you can think of the person, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a coworker, maybe it was a, a spouse, maybe it was a friend, maybe someone left a track on your door, 
maybe you pull up a, a YouTube video where a man clearly presented the gospel of Christ. I don't know how, what God did in your life, but we can just start going story by story all across this room and we see, wow, God's been so good to us because he's decided where we live and when we would live and he brought us into an intersection with the gospel of Jesus Christ and God found us and we found God. And that's changed everything for you. And do you know what that means? Although there's so much more that God wants to do in your life, He won the victory in your life because he found one of his creations. And it goes on to say that we might, that we should seek the Lord. And he says he wants to, um, if happily they, should, they might feel after him and find him. So it has this idea, I believe, of this, this knowing him. So once we get to that intersection with the gospel, we make the decision of faith in our creator. Well, he wants to know, know you. So that, 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 that journey of knowing your God is lifelong. But what if we had the perspective to stand back and say, God, not only have you blessed and decided where and when I would live so I'd find you, just like you used that person in my life who brought me to the knowledge of Jesus, I believe that you're deciding where and when I live so my life can also intersect somebody else's life and so they can find God. And that puts a whole new lens on everything we do. Do you know those people who go to the grocery store and people get saved? And they go to the park and someone gets saved. We're like, how do they, why are they the people like, when I go, no one gets saved. Well, yeah, because you don't have the lenses on to see that God's organizing where and when I live so people can find him. And this is to myself. So this morning we need to ask God for the, the eyes of a sovereign, active God. And we can stand here all day and look at these idolaters and say, ha, they had it all wrong. They were worshiping rocks that couldn't do anything I don't. I'm a Christian. I worship God. But in practical ways in our life, we act like our God's a passive dead God who could care less what's going on with his creation and could care less what's going on with your life. And I want to tell you this morning that's not true. Because he does care. He's deeply invested in your life. He's deeply invested with his whole creation. And he's directing the where and when of your life so you can find Jesus. But not only that you can find Jesus, but so that other people can find Jesus as well. And this is the biggest thing going on in our world today because this is a storyline of a creator, as Paul said, who wants to know his creation. In the beginning of time, Adam and Eve, what did they do with God every morning? They would walk with God in the cool of the day. And there was that relationship, that union, and that communion with God. Then sin broke that. And ever since then, remember? Genesis 3, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, said, I'm going to send a deliverer because I want to restore, you. I want to restore communion. I want to restore relationship with my creation. And they were kicked out of the place of union and they were rejected because of their sin before God without the covering of the sacrifice. And this is what God's doing in your life. And, this, and if you're sitting in this room, that means that that's this what God has done in your life. And we, so we could sit here this morning and say, man, wow, God's been so sovereign and good to me. But like I said, why don't we turn around and see how we can be used of God in the lives of others. That they should seek the Lord, Paul says, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And I was studying this passage, like that sounds really poetic and it sounds really good, but what in the world does that mean? That in God, we live and move and have our being. And I was trying to research it and like, 
what, looking in the Greek and trying to understand this. I reached out to a professor, actually, like, am I understanding this right? I believe this from what I've studied and what I've looked at this passage. It's just talking about the nearness, the imminence, the closeness of God in the lies of his creation, in the movement of his creation, and in the very existence of his creation. And Paul goes on to say, he says, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And I referenced this earlier. Paul makes a beautiful apologetic argument for God right here in verse 29. He says, for as much then, as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. So, if you are made in the image of God, how in the world, as an idol worshiper, do you think that God is made in your image? Because they would craft these gods based on the, the imagination of themselves. So I'll boil it down one more step. Like I said earlier, it's like this. If man is God-made, then how in the world is, man, is God man-made? In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, he says in verse 30, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. We're not going to unpack this whole verse here in verse 30, but that concept is this, that God has allowed, it's not like he's ignored, a time in history where people can make decisions and make decisions of ignorance and they can set paths even for whole societies of just anti-God and choosing to not know God and, and a society slip into this, this, this state of atheism and or just maybe an alternate perspective of God and like Hinduism and all that he says and God's he's allowed that to happen he's he's let that happen and right now is a time of opportunity because the ignorant can become knowledgeable of God those who are desperately reaching after an unknown God can get to know God and it can be a known God to them. He says the unknown God wants to be known, and there's a time right now where he's allowing some ignorance, but you know what? There's coming another day. And this gives us urgency. But now commandeth all men, that's the, all the creation, all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath chosen, ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. He says, someday, just as I'm kind of standing here, remember where he is? He's in this court-like setting in Athens. Like, just, just, just like I'm kind of standing here on trial before you all, and you're kind of taking the God of the Bible and saying, huh, what do we think about this guy? He's like, well, someday, there's another trial day. There's another courtroom. And God's not going to be on trial. Essence, in essence, they're putting God on trial here on Mars Hill. But no, God's going to be on the judge's throne. There's a man, the God-man. And he's going to stand and he's going to judge all nations. And how can he do that? How can he fairly, how can he justly do that? He said, I can... He said, that judge, he can judge the nations in righteousness because 
He is also the savior of the nations, and the desire of the nations will also be the judge of the nations. And he says right there in verse 31, he says, he has given assurance. Now, what does that mean? He's given assurance. We're familiar with that verse, that, that, that word assurance in Christianity, but it's a reason for faith. An assurance is a reason to believe, right? Maybe you're looking at a job candidate, or you're looking at a furniture item, or you're looking at a car, and you're looking for those reasons to believe that this is a, a verifiable good item, or you know, kick the tires, see it. He says, well, you know what? If you want a reason to believe Jesus, here's the reason you can believe Jesus. Because a historical Jesus busted a grave wide open, and no other person in history has ever done that by his own power. He says, and that's the reason for faith. Because all other world religions and these gods that you're propping up, there's nothing that looks like life in them. Right? They start to sag, you, you dust the foundation, and you whitewash them, and all these things. He says, those gods that you have to keep alive or keep standing, ears that can't hear, eyes that can't see, nose that can't smell, hands that can't act. He said, not only is this God a creator God, he's a recreator. And he has life and he is a sovereign of life so much that he can walk out of death alive because he's the creator of life. He says, and that desire of the nations is going to stand there. He's given a reason for faith to all people. And in this passage, just real quick, I want to mention that this is another reason that we should have confidence when we go to the world. Because not only do we know that, that, that this God is a creator, so he's globally relevant, we know that he is, the, he is the resurrected Jesus. And that, I'm saying historically, like you can look at the history books and say there was a man named Jesus who walked out of a grave. And he's a death conqueror, so I go to you in confidence because I have a reason for faith. And you have a reason for faith because Jesus is victor. And when the people heard this, they were like, I didn't get this is too much, right? Okay. And they couldn't wrap these, these, these gold, rock, silver, precious stones, worshiping people couldn't wrap their minds around a God that was so alive and active and powerful that he would bust a grave open. And went completely head to head with their concept of God. So at that point, they say, okay, now the resurrection of the dead, that's too much. Okay, done, right? Court session done. Some believed, others didn't, and Paul departed. So when we look at this sermon this morning, let's kind of review. What should we understand walking away from Paul's sermon here? The first thing we need to do is view God right. Your God is not dead. Your God is not propped up by you. And Ann Arbor Baptist Church is supported by God. They don't support God. He will prop you up with his might and power in this community. You don't need to see something happen. He's like, oh, wow, this is looking really bad on Christianity and all this stuff. We're going to try to make God big. And God's saying, no, I will sustain you and empower you with my might to lift and make myself great among your community. Christianity is not a prop for God. We don't need to go on a PR campaign for God. We need to understand who God is and let his power through us to reach the world. So we need to understand our God, right? Our God is alive, he's active, and he's working, and he has a plan. I think this is really important to understand about our God regarding missions. Our God is intelligent. 
in sports, they have very intelligent people running the teams, managers, coaches, and we look at these people and we give them so much credit for being thoughtful, purposeful, direct, strategic, and they stand in that locker room and they give, them, they give those guys an inspiring speech and they hold up that whiteboard and they XXOO right here, you go here, this guy's going to do this, you block here, you do this, right? And we step back and look like, wow, what an incredible coach with a plan. That guy's amazing. Then we think about, <coughs> I wonder if God's woken up yet. If, I wonder if he knows what's going on down here. Yes, he does. And we'd be fools to look at coaches in the sports world and think about them as intelligent directors and planners with a plan and a purpose for their players and then look at our God and say, but I think he's totally checked out and doesn't care what's going on down here and he's not deciding anything. He's not intending anything for us. God is active in your life. He wants to be active in your life. He has been active in your life. And let's just say, God, I'm going to throw my life fully into what you're doing. And we'll understand this concept of an intelligent, caring, active God in our lives. You don't have to prop God up. He's propping you up. He's keeping your very breath alive. And also, you don't need to kind of, hey, God, like, can we try to get this thing going? God's like, I'm trying to get you going. So when missions month comes, we need to understand that we're not trying to make something for God. Like, hey, God, we're going to send someone here, 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 here. How's that? How's that look? God says, no, I'm going to send them here. I'm going to send them here. I'm going to send them here. Are you in? And I'm going to send you here. Are you in? That's what missions is. It's us getting on God's plan. It's not us making a plan for God. And so then also we need to view our world right. We need to understand our God, then we need to understand our world. Because we can look around and see a lot of chaos, especially, I mean, it's just like new levels lately. We look around like, this is crazy. But is there a sovereign God that knows and instead of, setting, instead of sitting here and thinking and trying to explain a, a way like, oh yeah, but this man's free will, so God is not fully in control and all this stuff. And I understand there is a balance there of sovereignty and free will and all of that. We won't get into that tonight, this morning. But I will say this, that God is working. Near the end of my college career, I took a trip. Morocco, Egypt, Lebanon. Actually, I came back really sick, and I came back to, I think, the conference that was happening here, and I laid back in that room back there feeling horrible. But I took a trip, because I wanted to see, okay, God, where, where can you use me? I think that's a legitimate thing. So that's an honorable thing. I, I feel like, okay, God, you've called me to the Muslim world. I grew up in a Christian home. God called me to the ministry, and then as a near end of high school, and especially in college, God just gave me a, a burning passion to reach Muslims with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So where do you go for that? North Africa, Middle East. Perfect opportunity, right? Well, I went over there, came back, and there was no internship or future ministry opportunity that really panned out. I love to go back to Cairo. Cairo was amazing. I remember being in the streets of Cairo and being, this is, this, is, this, is a good, this is where I'm supposed to be. And I don't know where God will direct my path in the future. I'd love to be in Cairo. I'd love to be who knows where. But I came home from the trip, started you know, doing life. I was going to graduate a few months later. One day, a, a friend said, hey, um, can you take me down to the airport? Or you know, I was going to pick him up. Hey, I'm flying into Milwaukee. Can, can you come pick me up? So I was going to roll down there, go down to Mitchell International Airport, stopped at a strip mall for some Turkish coffee. I look in the sign. 
the corner, I see a sign called Rohingya Bazaar. Now, Rohingya, pastors, that's kind of a hard name. We're not really familiar with it. Never really heard of the name Rohingya. Well, actually, I had, because months previously, about January, February of that year, we had a college project where our focus group was the Rohingya of Bangladesh. So how many of you guys are podcast people? So I pulled up some podcasts. Hey, can I educate myself on the Rohingya? Who are the Rohingya? Okay, interesting. There are these people in Southeast Asia. That's what I knew about them. Okay, great. So we hand out these Joshua Project prayer cards to a bunch of people who came through. Hey, pray for the Rohingya. Here's some pictures of them. You know, refugee group, Southeast Asia. Interesting, cool. Okay, college project come, came and went, like I said in the video. Life moved on. Went to the Middle East, came back. Oh, fast, fast forward back to that strip mall in Milwaukee. I'm standing there on um, Layton Avenue in Milwaukee, looking in, look in the corner and see Rohingya Bazaar. I'm like, Rohingya? I know that name, right? So next time I'm in the area with a buddy, I walk in there and like, hey, my name's Ben. I've heard about you guys. Good to meet you. And like, hey, can you referee a soccer tournament for us this weekend? It's like, yeah. Like, I've never done that before. I walked in the store and it was a lead, like literally a leadership meeting at the store. Now, in all fairness, their stores are very much different than ours. We go into the store. We go to Aldi. We go to Plum, whatever, Plum Market, whatever. You go in and get out, right? But that for them is like a gathering place. You show up. Hey, grab a seat, sit down, grab something to drink, grab a bag of chips or whatever, and just talk. Talk, you know, society or whatever. And it's kind of like their stores are a gathering place. So I walked in on a little gathering. It was the imam. It was the director of the society, their, of their little community center. I think it might have been the, it was the, their, their, their soccer coach. Maybe like four or five people who were significant people in society gathered right there at the counter around the area there by the front of the store and a white guy walks in and they say we have Rohingya from Chicago coming to play Rohingya of Milwaukee and I guess they wanted a white guy to blow the whistle right so I'm the white guy to blow the whistle so I go off to Walmart get my whistles right show up and I reft a soccer game well a couple of them how many of you have ever reft how much love did you get from the people around you none right so I'm getting like you blind you know and this expletives being thrown at me and stuff. Okay, whatever. So, hey, but I'm, I'm in the mix, right? I'm here with him. I had to send a guy off, straight red card. Is an intentional handball in the box. Good call, but, you know, all these things that happen. Then we end up afterwards, hey, we're going to go eat at the mosque. So, hey, let's go to the mosque. Go walk into the mosque, down to the basement. We're eating this ridiculously spicy food, sitting on the floor. And the guy next to me is crying. Why, why do you guys do this to yourself? I don't know, maybe he was, like, Americanized, so he couldn't handle it anymore. They eat this morish, this, this spicy food, and then eating the food and just a uh, continuation of events and God allowed me to become an ESL teacher, an English as a second language teacher for the community center. They have adults that come and they say, okay, you're dropped in society, you know, sink or swim, right? So I just start ABCs, how to navigate a street, how to navigate a grocery store, terminologies and all these things. And the Lord just started opening up doors among their community and the Lord gave me great standing with them. And that, that Christmas, I was talking to someone at the mosque, like, hey, what if we did a Christmas thing here at the mosque? Like, yeah, sure. Hey, perfect, right? So I get a couple friends together. We get a John 3.16 sign, Bible land sign, Merry Christmas sign. We truck into the mosque on a Sunday afternoon, and this is Jesus. Jesus came and he died for you. I was, I was nervous on the way down. Like, I don't know where this is going to go. But it went well. Actually, most of the people that came were people I had impacted through my English class, which is an interesting lesson and something to keep in mind for you. As you say, hey, how can I be used in the lives of those around me, often those um, relationships that you build with people can be used for God's glory in a special way. So life kept on going on. I've worked on learning their language a little bit. They have a minority, um, they have a, their own language. Like what language do they speak? They speak Rohingya. And um, it's not written down 
in a unified way. They have maybe about five ways to write down their language, and they don't agree about it. So I kind of to one guy, like, hey, I've heard you work with this script, whatever, and I might have mentioned another script, another way to write the language down, and he was like, started bad-mouthing, like, so-and-so is in it for money and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, I'm not, not trying to get involved in your societal grievances, but the Lord just started to open door after door after door, and I've been in multiple homes and trying to share the gospel with them, and God just directed my path to many people, and I have the ability now to kind of strike up a conversation with someone at Walmart, and they'll be like, I was at um, Milwaukee Police Department graduation for the academy. Um, recently, I saw this Rohingya kid in the hallway. He just became a police officer. Walk up to him and start talking. He's like, wait, wait, wait. How do you speak my language? And those are just really neat opportunities that the Lord just continues to give standing in the community. We need to pray for a gospel breakthrough, and we'll talk about this maybe more tonight. Um, but God is doing really something really special. So how does that have anything to do with Acts 17? Because this, God has directed, directed where and when I would live so the Rohingya would find him. I believe that. I believe that God has decided where and when I live because the Rohingya need to know Jesus. To him, to him right now, Jesus is unknown to them. Or he's falsely known to them as Nobi Isa, who is not God. But I believe that God has chosen me and others to be used of him so the Rohingya can know him. And he has decided where and when the Rohingya would live so they could find him. 25 minutes away from the Rohingya, I heard about them. For some reason, someone chose, not me, we're going to focus on the Rohingya. Cool. Largest group in North America, perhaps the entire Western world, was 25 minutes down the road. That's God deciding where and when people live. So when I'm driving down to the airport and I stop for coffee and I look in the corner and I see Rohingya, I know that name. And can't you see an active God? He's not a passive God. And so tonight we're going to talk about, hey, what are those ways that I can understand what God's doing? And it makes us see the world different. We're going to talk about this also tonight, that when we see, hey, 2,000 you know, people from Guatemala are rolling into Alabama, we don't sit there and just pound our coffee till and say, oh, I stinking hate the government that's letting this slow down. I believe in a proper political view on all those things. We're not going to get into that, but I also believe that I have a sovereign God who knows what's happening, and he's not asleep. And so instead of us screaming and getting angry about people coming to our country who don't belong here or whatever, that's not true. Because God brought them here ultimately, and he's allowed it to happen. I don't understand it, and I don't want our country to change from, you know, God-fearing values, but why don't I, if I'm concerned about that, go grab 300 Spanish tracks and go down to the refugees, go down to the immigrants who I think shouldn't be here and say, I would never go to Guatemala, but Guatemala came to me and here's Jesus, he loves you. And when we're walking the store, we see someone with a, a turban or whatever, like, well, I don't do Would you, how many, how many of you see yourself likely going to Saudi Arabia in the near future or distant future? Anybody? Saudi Arabia's coming to you. University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, I met a young kid named, um, what was the name? I forget which guy, which, um, Hashim, Hashem, no. Anyway, I talked to him many, many times, sit down and go for coffee, and he trusted Christ as his Savior, and there's very unlikely that I would ever go to the city that he lives in, Saudi Arabia. Very unlikely. But God brought that young man to my life so he could know Jesus. And I don't know where he is today, but he had my Bible, last I heard, and God saved him. And so when we look at all these 
this people movement. I want to challenge you with this this morning. People movement is a work of God so they can find him. And we can process immigrants and refugees, not in fear or anger. I've learned, I thought about this in my own life. Any response that I have is that is fearful or angry is not from God. And I'll be honest with you, someone who has a burden and a love for the Muslim world, I can I be transparent with you? This last week has been a little interesting for me to process. And I know not all, I'm not going to get into it all, but I know not all Palestinians are Hamas and all this kind of thing. I'm not, we're not going to pick that apart. I'm just saying, God, you are the solution to this situation. There is no problem that the gospel will not fix. And if in your heart, you need to come before God today and say, you know what? I've had a wrong response to people movement. Say, God, open my eyes to see the opportunity. And what the alive, active God, not the passive, propped up God, is doing. So when I walk through the grocery store, I say, this is a God moment. This is amazing. And maybe, depending on the area where you live, going to the store is more and more of a missions trip. Let's take the opportunity. Let's, let's, let's be ready. Let's, 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 let's stage ourselves to be involved in the work of God in our day. Let's all stand together. I don't know how the Lord used it in your life this morning. Maybe you just need to say, you know, I, I've been in my own heart believing that God's not working in my life. He's dead. He's asleep. He's not aware of what's happening. I want to tell you God is. And so maybe there's actually just maybe a whole different direction God will take this in your life where you say, you know, I was going to do this with my life. There's a career path, a family life, and then this happened and this happened, and then just God seems a million miles away. Paul said he's not far from every one of us. He's right there. Cry out to him. He wants to be right there with you in that crisis. And then say, God, in our world, I want to view my world with the view of my sovereign, loving, pursuing creator. So this morning as the piano plays, Maybe if the Lord speaks to your heart, you can just sit down there or come down. I'm not sure however your church usually does it. And just dedicate your perspective of God and your perspective of the world to be a biblical perspective. Maybe there's an attitude that you feel like, you know, I've been viewing the news in a way that creates fear or anger or frustration and unbelief, really. God, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to believe what you're doing. We can be conquering, victorious, happy Christians. We don't need to see with our wringing our hands in fear and anger. Let's pray together and then the pastor will come. Lord, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you're alive this morning and that you see us and you know us. You know where you are. You know where we are. Lord, would our hearts be filled with faith this month? Would we hop on board with what you're doing, 
and we'll praise you for everything you do in our life and in our world. You my pray. Amen.